Good morning, friends. Hope your summers have been awesome. We're wrapping up. It's really hard to believe how fast it goes by sometimes. Um, we're, that was loud. We're, uh, we're also wrapping up a series that we've been doing all summer today called Growing in Christ. I hope you've really enjoyed this series. We've covered a ton of different ground in here. It's been 13 weeks. And this final message of the series today that we're going to use to wrap it up is on witnessing, on what it means to go out and be a witness of Jesus Christ in our communities. You know, there's a story I want to start with. There's a story of a courtroom and this attorney who calls an expert witness to the stand to question him. And the attorney says, Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? The witness said, no. The attorney said, well, did you check for blood pressure? And the doctor said, no. He said, did you check for breathing? The doctor said, no. The attorney said, so then is it possible that the patient was still alive when you began the autopsy? The doctor said, no. He said, doctor, how can you be so sure? The doctor said, because his brain was in a jar on my desk. The attorney thought for a second. He said, I see. But could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? The doctor said, yes, he could have been alive and practicing law. <laughs> Sorry for any lawyers in the room. Even lawyers like lawyer jokes, right? That was funny. So, see, but without witnesses, we couldn't even answer the simplest of questions. We, without eyewitnesses who saw something happen, we wouldn't be able to answer even simple questions. The passage of scripture we'll be working from today is Mark chapter 5. But we're going to take kind of the scenic route to get there. We're going to take the back roads to get there. Okay, because what I don't want to happen today is I don't want to just motivate you to make disciples. I don't want to just inspire you to make disciples. I don't want to shame you into making disciples. I don't want you to ascend to the truth that you should be making disciples. I don't want to add something to your to-do list. The only thing I want to convey today, just one thing only, is that Jesus commands disciples to make disciples. And so if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, he commands us to go out and make disciples. And so the question is, what are we going to do with that command? At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, all authority, he doesn't say some authority, he doesn't say a little authority, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now, I got to tell you what I really wanted to do here is I wanted to say, go make disciples of all nations, you're dismissed, drop the mic, and walk off, okay? But, like, Charles Stanley or somebody could get away with that, somebody who's got, like, a 70-year preaching career behind him. If I did that, you guys would just think I was lazy and didn't prepare this week. So I'm not going to do that, okay? I'm going to give you a sermon. It's, it's worth the cost of admission, right? There's no cost for admission, okay? But if I did that, let's pretend I did that, the point I would be trying to make in doing that is to say, what could I possibly add to a command from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? What could I possibly add to what he has told us to do? Let's, let's remember who he is for a moment, okay? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. That means Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing that was made was made. See, Jesus is the focus of everything that we've been talking about for the last 13 weeks, and really before that. But for the last 13 weeks, the series in Growing on Christ, everything that we've been proclaiming, 
everything that we've been teaching, it's all geared towards Christ. The, you know, we talked about the assurance of salvation. We talked about the assurance of answered prayer, the assurance of victory and forgiveness and guidance. We talked about the reason we put Christ first, the reason we rely on his strength, the reason we believe in his word and love others and give generously and worship and serve and grow together as a body of believers. And all of it, every single last drop of what we've been proclaiming hinges entirely on Jesus Christ being who the Bible says he is. And until we really grasp that, you know, until we really understand who he is, what he's capable of, the power that he has, the command to make disciples is pointless. And we might as well put up a new sign outside that says, Sue Wesleyan Lodge Post 49783, because without the relationship and the mission, that's really all we are. And so I don't want to just, you know, I don't say that to shame anyone, I don't, but I also don't want to just motivate you or inspire you to make disciples, and, and here's why. See, those things can be useful. Motivation and inspiration are, are useful things, okay? But motivation and inspiration are feelings, and feelings come and go. Feelings are real, and they're attached to real circumstances and real events that happen, but they're like shifting cargo in the overhead bin. You don't let the shifting cargo fly the plane. When feelings drive us, they steer us off course. Our feelings can't be trusted. And I know that you're like, that's not what Oprah says. Okay, but let me tell you, Oprah gives some terrible advice. Okay, here's what Oprah says. Quote, follow your feelings. If it feels right, move forward. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. One blogger that I looked up this week said, Follow your feelings, they know the way. Listen to your heart. Feel into your decisions. Use your body as a compass and guide. And trust that the universe always has your back. Right? Like, oh, come on, folks. Like, seriously? How many, how many of you, if you followed your feelings, would be locked up right now? Be honest. Be honest. Right? Follow our feelings. Do you know how many atrocities and wars and murders and famines and robberies have taken place because of people who decided to follow their feelings? Do you know how little most of us would get done every day if we decided to follow our feelings? I've got a really, really comfortable mattress at home, and we've got a six-month-old puppy named Skipper who loves to cuddle, and he will just, like, snuggle right up next to you. And you know what? Most days, I don't feel like getting out of bed. I feel like staying there all day long, okay? I don't feel like exercising most of the time. I don't feel like cleaning. I don't feel like doing yard work. I usually feel like eating something unhealthy and watching TV, okay? And so, but it's tempting for us because we feel those things to listen to that bad advice to follow those feelings, okay? And so where am I going with this? You see, the problem we face when it comes to the command to make disciples is that what we feel when we think about sharing Jesus with other people, is opposition. What we feel is a fear of rejection. What we feel is the fear of being asked difficult questions. What we feel is the, the, the sense that maybe we don't know the Bible enough, and so it brings a fear. What we feel is the fear of an awkward situation or a difficult conversation. And so what do we do? We let feelings fly the plane. We let our feelings determine the actions that we decide to take or not take. And here's the thing, so okay, follow me here. The reason that is a problem, the reason it's a problem to follow our feelings is because we are called to live by faith and not by feelings. 
The Bible says we are called to live by faith and not by feelings. The righteous shall live by faith, right? The righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 11, the Bible gives us a really clear definition of what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 says faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Okay, so faith is a substance and an evidence. It's, it's the thing that you can see behind what we can't see. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is built on decisions and actions. Faith is, is the substance and evidence of what we believe. Tony Evans says, faith isn't faith till it hits your feet. Okay, so faith isn't the presence or the absence of a feeling. It's a decision to do something even though I'm feeling a certain way. Okay, so I may feel afraid, but I'm not going to let fear fly the plane. I'm going to live by faith and do what I ought to do, even though I don't feel like doing it. Or I may feel tempted to do something, but I decide not to give in to the temptation because of the faith that I have. And so faith is the evidence. It's me making the decision to not give in to that temptation. And why can we do that? It's because our faith is based on truth. Our faith isn't based on our feelings. It's based on the unwavering truth of the word of God and the hope that we have that he will do what he promised us he will do. Okay, so if we have faith, we should see some tangible evidence behind what isn't seen and some substance behind the hope that we proclaim. And so when it comes to witnessing or making disciples, what happens is that it's true. Going out and sharing about Jesus with somebody is a scary thing. It doesn't come natural for us. It's not an easy thing to do. But because of faith, we're going to do it anyway. Because even though we feel like not doing it, our faith says we need to have some evidence behind the hope that we proclaim. See, faith calls us to do it in spite of it being uncomfortable. Okay, but then in step the church at some point in history, around the 70s, to create what we'll call problem 1A. And what's happened is that that many well-intentioned churches, many churches who are really just trying to do what's right and make things easy for people to witness, stepped in and they did this. A guy named Rick Howerton wrote about it, uh, this movement that started in the 70s. Rick Howerton says, As has been true in many years, speaking the name of Jesus was difficult for people. No problem, though. If church members would get seekers to weekend worship services, the teaching pastor would be certain they heard about Christ. Church members were now fully aware that it was their responsibility to bring people to the church. Rather than elevate Jesus, church members elevated their church. They spoke of their cool pastor and his practical talks. Maybe not here. Okay. They spoke of the... (laughs) I'm just kidding. They spoke about the awesome band and the amazing singers, the -the state-of-the-art children's program that will, you know, make your kids want to come to church. And the something-for-everyone list of opportunities to choose from. The seeker movement was vital for building bridges to lost people, but in the, but in the process of becoming seeker-sensitive, we unintentionally taught parishioners to sell their local church rather than the story of their Christ. That kind of hits home, doesn't it? I mean, for so long we've been taught, just, just bring people to church, just, just go out and invite people to church, and that's all that it means to witness. You know, it's interesting when you read the Gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, you see all these accounts and you see all these pictures of, of these massive crowds who are following Jesus. And have you ever stopped to pause and, and wonder, like, where did all these crowds come from? 
Where did all these crowds of people who were there to see Jesus come from? In Matthew 4.25, it says, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then later, he's healing other people in the home. And it says the whole town in Capernaum is gathered at the door. He fed groups of 5,000 and 3,000. He had to teach from a boat on one occasion because the crowd was going to crush him. And when the crowd got so big, they tried to cross the other side of the sea. The crowd followed him around to the other side. And so where did these crowds come from? Well, in Matthew 4.24, it says, his fame went throughout all Syria. In Matthew 9, it says, you know, Jesus heals a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And he brings a 12-year-old dead girl back to life. Okay, and in verse 26, it says, the report of this went out into all that land. And then he heals two blind men and a man possessed by demons. And it says that when he departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. In Mark 1.28, it says immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Luke 4.14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And so you see over and over and over again, that's just a sample. You see crowds gathered Because people, like you and me, told other people the news about Jesus. People like you and me were telling other people the news about Jesus. You know, it's this guy going up and saying, hey, I had leprosy, and he touched me, and now the leprosy is gone. Like, you had leprosy? Yeah, just a minute ago, I had leprosy, and I'm clean. Like, it's, it's gone. Right Or, hey, I was blind, but then, you know, he came up, I heard him spit, then he rubbed some mud in my eyes, and now I can see. They were telling other people what they had experienced. Even the Pharisees, the people who killed Jesus, even the Pharisees, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, he calls him Rabbi. He said, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. See, the word was getting out because people were telling people about what Jesus was doing. That's what it means to be a witness, okay? To see or experience something and to tell other people about it. That's why we rely on the testimony of a witness in the courtroom, okay? It's hard to know without a witness what exactly happened. And so the news about Jesus and what he was doing spread because people who had real life-altering experiences with him went and told other people what they saw and knew to be true. You know what you won't find in Scripture? You won't find this anywhere. You won't find the Apostle Paul leaning up against a marble column in Greece saying like, hey, dude, you should come check out my church. It's called The Experience, and we're really relevant, and we've got this awesome worship band, and this coffee's good, and I'm part of this really cool singles ministry, and, like, you should just come check us out, man, because we're just all about being real. Okay, and... I'm just, I make like light of that. I had to look up trendy church names to find the experience. That, that one kind of made me gag. Maybe you like trendy church names, and that's okay. That's not the point, right? But what you won't find, right, anywhere in Scripture is where Jesus tells someone, just invite people to church. And, and I'm sorry, I, got, I feel like I got to apologize now. If you invited somebody to church today and they're here, like the person who invited you isn't a bad person. They didn't do anything wrong. It's not bad to invite people to church. Okay, but inviting people to church isn't a substitute for living our calling as witnesses in the world. See, the example that we see in Scripture and that we're called to follow is that once we experience a life-transforming relationship with Jesus, we have to go tell people about him. So it isn't, hey, come to my church. It's, 
hey, let me tell you about what Jesus is doing in my life. And I know that some of this stuff sounds weird, but don't just take my word for it. Like, come on Sunday morning, and you can meet a bunch of other people who are experiencing the same thing. You see the difference? The difference is that it's not bad to invite somebody to church, but the point we have to make is that it all centers on Jesus. It doesn't center on a church program. It doesn't center on how good our coffee is or anything else. It all hinges on Jesus. The news that needs to spread is not the news about Sue Wesleyan Church. The news that needs to spread is the news about Jesus. Okay, that brings us to Mark chapter 5. Now, I know we took like a a washed-out seasonal road to get there, but um, this passage is a really interesting and clear and practical example of what Jesus calls us to do as witnesses. Okay, so Jesus and the disciples come to a place called Gerasenes, and this crazy, like, demon-possessed dude comes out to meet him. And he's been living in the tombs by himself. He's not fit to be around other people. He doesn't play nice with others. I forgot to mention he's naked, so there's that. Okay, and he's possessed by demons, right? So his own people keep trying to chain him up and bind him, but he's too strong and he breaks the chains. And no one in this whole land is strong enough to wrap this guy up, okay? And so he just lives in the tombs and and in these mountains and he shouts and screams to the hills and he cuts himself with rocks and it's weird stuff, but it's there. This is all paraphrase, okay? You've got to read it. Okay, so he runs up to Jesus. And I have to imagine, like, when this naked guy comes running out of the tombs, the disciples were probably like, like, get me out of here. What's this going on? But it says that he bows down before Jesus and shouts, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, please don't torment me. So Jesus then, through a conversation, figures out this guy's possessed by a legion or a mob of demons. And they strike up a deal, and the demons ask to be sent into a herd of pigs. And so Jesus abides and says, yes, go into the herd of pigs. And they go, but the pigs are like, hey, we didn't agree to this. I don't know a whole lot about pigs, but I'm assuming they're like most farm animals. They just kind of want to be left alone. And so what do the pigs do? They storm down this mountain, 2,000 of them, down to the beach, and they drown themselves. So imagine you're there feeding your herd of 2,000 pigs, and all of a sudden, they just storm down the mountain and drown themselves. Okay, that's where we're at. Okay, so we're going to pick up in verse 14. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 14. It says, So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. I like that part of the story. It's kind of a weird part of the story, but what I like about that part of of this account is that if I was going to make this up, I would have ended it as that, you know, they saw the man sitting clothed and in his right mind, And then they all worshiped Jesus and bowed down and lived happily ever after. This is how I think that this is the the evidence that this story is not made up. That Mark, you know, is talking to people who witnessed these things. And he's just simply accounting for what what they witnessed. Okay, but it doesn't end that way. It says they were afraid. Well, no kidding. They were afraid. What kind of power is this? That these, these swine flee down this hill and drown themselves, that this man that nobody could control, is he's sitting there talking to us and he's clothed and in his right mind. Okay, in verse 18 it says that when Jesus got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. 
However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your people or go to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Okay, so we've got this guy in this story, right? He's got all kinds of bad things going on with this guy, right? He's possessed by a legion or a mob of demons. Society's given up on him. He's an outcast. He's living in tombs. He's harming himself. All this bad stuff, right? Nobody will touch this guy. But it says, but Jesus had compassion on him and changed his life. Everything about this guy was transformed to the point that when other people saw him, they were terrified. That is the power of Jesus. You know, if we don't believe in that power, what are we doing here? Why, why are we getting together on Sunday mornings and singing songs and raising our hands if we don't really believe in that power? And if we do believe in that power, why do we live like we don't? You know, it's easy to look at the scripture and, and say, you know, why would they ask him to leave? You know, you'd be like, hey, wow, you did a good job, Jesus. We got some other stuff you could fix too. Stick around. But they didn't do that. They says they were terrified and they wanted him to leave. Right? They saw the power of Jesus at work. And the thing is that we kind of do the same thing. See, it's easy to look at some of these stories and think, oh, why would they do that? But when we really are introspective and look at ourselves, we do the same thing. You know, ask yourself, do I really want that kind of power invading my life? Am I willing to let that kind of power interrupt what's going on in my life? You know, I, I think a lot of people approach Jesus and say, like, Jesus, I, I like you here and I like you here, but in this spot of my life, I, I don't want you over here. Like, I want to just kind of come to church and do the church thing, and, and, but, but stay out of this area because if you come into this room, you're going to rearrange the furniture, and I like it where it's at. Okay, and what's the part that we don't want to give him access to? It's the part where he tells us to do something that's uncomfortable. You know, sometimes I wonder, do we understand who we're disobeying when we're disobeying him? Do we really understand who he is if we're not willing to do the things that he's called us to do? You know, shouldn't we be more like the demon-possessed man, just, just begging Jesus to let us follow him, just begging him to just let me come with you and, and teach me what you're doing. You know, and, and going out and living obediently and telling everyone about the good news that he's had mercy on us. Because that is good news, right? This is good news. This isn't meant to be like a downer punch in the gut sermon, okay? This is good news. If you have experienced the life transformation that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is good news. Okay, this guy in this story, this demon-possessed man, is a picture of who we are without Christ. We are lost and on the outside. We are completely helpless, bound with shackles and chains. We're screaming out. We're harming ourselves. But the moment we placed our trust in Jesus, the moment we placed our trust in him, he set us free from all of that, and he changed our lives. And so I wonder, if we've really experienced that, shouldn't we be out there telling other people about what he's doing? Jesus called the man in the story to be a witness. You know, the guy wanted to stay with Jesus and follow him and learn from him. Jesus said, no, that's, you don't need that. He said, this guy had one experience with Jesus, and Jesus said, that's enough. Go tell people what happened. You don't, you don't need to, to learn anything else from me. You've experienced this change. Go tell other people about it. 
This church's mission is to lead other people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not the staff's mission or the board's mission or the volunteer's mission. That's all of our mission. If you call Sue Wesleyan Church your home, you've come on board, and that's the mission. And so how do we do that? Well, we start by going and telling other people about what Jesus is doing. That's what it means to witness. I asked earlier, you know, why are we even here? And I'll tell you why. We're here because Jesus Christ was sinless, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended to heaven. He transformed lives. He transformed the lives of a few people. And those people went and told other people about what happened. And a lot of them were killed for it. Most of them were killed for it. And those people went and told other people about what happened. And those people went and told other people about what happened. And on and on and on through history, people will have been telling people about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done in their lives. And from the, you know, the medieval times to the, you know, the 1600s, the 1700s, 1800s, and then in the 1900s and the 2000s for, I hope, I think everyone in this room, right, someone told you about who Jesus was and what he's doing, and you decided to get on board and at least come to Sue Wesleyan Church here today in 2019. Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of cool, like the lineage. If you think about it, like, right, Peter walked with Jesus, saw everything that happened, and I'm just using him for example. There were others. He told other people about what happened, who told someone, who told someone, who told someone, who told someone, who told you. Right? That's the reason we're here. There's a lineage, like a genealogy almost, a family tree that we can trace our faith directly back to Jesus and the people that he walked with. So you're probably wondering what all the stacks of paper are for. I've had a few people ask, like, what's with the stacks of paper? A few people tried to be helpful and clean them up. Appreciate that. Um, no, it's, they're not just like left out. That was for uh, an illustration, okay? So each individual sheet of paper, you've seen them stacked all over the place. Each individual sheet of paper represents a person who doesn't know Jesus. You walk past these people every day. They're the people that you get coffee next to. They're the people who serve you food at a restaurant. They're the people who give you a change at a gas station. Uh, sometimes they're people who come into your life at inconvenient times and in inconvenient places, like right in front of the door to the sanctuary, right? Sometimes they're an inconvenience, at least from our perspective. Um, for some, they're closer. Some of them are people we know very well. Some of them are our mothers, our fathers, our children, our uncles, aunts, friends, family, classmates, teammates, whoever it might be. These are people who are lost, separated from God, and who are going to spend eternity separated from God. But what if we think about the call, Jesus calls each of us to go out and witness what he is doing. So what if we started doing that? What if instead of living by fear and letting fear fly the plane, what if we decided we were going to live by faith? And we were going to do exactly what he called us to do and start telling people the news about Jesus. Imagine if 250 of us did this. I'm using 250 because that works well with reams of paper. So this is a 250 stack. The rest of them are 500. So imagine if 250 of us decided today, I'm going to go out, and this year, I'm going to lead one other person to Jesus Christ. I might have to talk to many people, but I'm going to make it a goal to lead one other person to Jesus Christ. In 2019, we would grow from 250 to 500. 
Imagine if those people were obedient disciples and decided, you know what, we're going to do that too. We're going to continue to lead at least one person to Jesus Christ every year. Well, the next year, we have a 1,000. And then that 1,000, now we have another 1,000, we have 2,000. You know, I stacked these up first service and they didn't fall, but uh, it's going to get pretty high. Like, I didn't know how high this was going to get when I started. I was a little worried. Um, I'm glad there's nobody in the front row today. But imagine if year after year after year, we just kept making disciples. We just kept living by faith. We just kept saying, God, I'm going to be obedient even though it's uncomfortable. I'm going to keep reaching people with the gospel. I'm going to keep telling people about all the incredible things that you're doing in my life. And whether they accept it or not, I'm going to leave that up to you. But I'm going to live by faith because you told me to do it, and so I'm going to do it. I wanted to show you what it would look like after just six years of us leading people obediently to Christ. It's getting a little wobbly. It's getting a little wobbly. I'm a little, I'm a little worried. It's kind of like Jenga. You don't know. Somebody in the last service said, well, if they fall over, you'll just call it church plants. And uh, I said, oh, that's a good idea, man. I'll, I'll do that. But I'm just going to keep stacking here. I might have to go with two stacks in a minute. This is just six years, folks. This is six years of us living obediently. Each individual sheet of paper is a human being, a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. That's starting to wiggle. Let's do this. Some of this belongs to the national office, and we've got to return it, so I don't want to. I'd, uh, we didn't have enough paper on hand. We don't stock this much paper. We're not doing like Old Testament end times getting ready for, you know, the apocalypse or anything on paper. Um, look at this. In six years, what started with 250 people committed to leading others in a growing relationship with Jesus turns into 16,000 new believers. 16,000. That's crazy. But you know what's really crazy? I did the math I'm going to shorten this up just a little bit. I did the math. I wanted to see what it would look like in 10 years. And I thought, you know what I'll do is I'll get a ladder and I'll put a mark on the wall wherever 10 years is at. And you can't find a mark on the wall because what I found out when I did the math is that that would be a 170-foot stack of paper. And they don't make a 170-foot step ladder. Okay? 170 feet. To give you an idea... That wouldn't fit underneath the Mackinac Bridge. The Mackinac Bridge is 155 feet clearance. You're talking about 170 feet of individual sheets of paper, 512,000 of them, each one a person who didn't know Christ and now does. Now, you think that's bold, audacious, couldn't happen? Let me remind you, God started with 12. God started with 12. He's had many. And they left, and Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? And the 12 said, no, we'll stay. He said, that's all right, I got 12, I can do it. We're going to change the world. We're going to set the world on fire with 12 people who are devoted and committed to making other believers. And so they did that. And here we are today, in August 2019, all around the world, people are worshiping Jesus because it started with 12. So do you think that we could start with 250 and make a pretty big impact? Yeah. Remember, you know, Ephesians, we talk about God can do infinitely more than we might ask or hope for. It says exceedingly abundantly in some translations. 
He can do more than we could possibly ask. We just have to put our trust in him. That's all we have to do. He's telling us, live by faith, and I will reap the benefits. I will be the one that brings in the harvest. So I don't want you to leave here today feeling inspired or motivated or even discouraged or shamed, okay? Regardless of how you feel, I want you to decide, today I'm going to start living by faith. I'm going to start telling other people about who Jesus is and what he's done in my life, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it costs me relationships, even if it uh, creates awkwardness at work, even if it creates awkwardness with people I know. I'm going to do it because simply because Jesus commands it, and he is God. In Philemon 1, 4 through 6, Paul writes just a beautiful passage of Scripture. And this passage of Scripture, as we wrap up, is our prayer as a church for you all. It says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. That is our prayer for you all. When we pray for our church, that is our prayer, that, that your witness and the sharing of your faith may be effective when you acknowledge every good thing that is in you because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this time together. We just bow before you right now, and we humble ourselves in this moment, acknowledging who Jesus is. And we submit to him as Lord of our lives, understanding he tells us to count the cost in following him, Lord, and we're ready. We want to follow him, Lord. We want to be like that man just just begging Jesus to let us follow him. Give us hearts that just yearn for you, God. Give us hearts that break for the lost people around us, for the people that we, we bump into everywhere we go, Lord. Let our hearts break for those people. But let us be filled with the joy of the good news that Jesus Christ has transformed our lives, that he has brought us from death to life. And let that good news, Lord, just overflow through the power of your spirit so that we could be effective in sharing our faith with other people, God. Help us to live obediently to your calling. Give us the strength to do so, Lord. We can't do this on our own. None of this is possible by human efforts. It's only possible because of you. And Lord, we just look to you and we ask that as we step out in faith that you would bless us, that you would bless each person here who decides today to step out in faith and lead someone to Jesus Christ this year and every year. And we're just excited to watch the world around us change as we live in obedience to your calling. We thank you, God. We praise you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, now I can drop the mic and say, you're dismissed. Have a great week. Go and make disciples.